0: What does it mean to bear witness? The act of witnessing is also the act of universal acceptance. Giving is entwined with wealth and abundance, depending on the reciprocal relationship one has with land and community. It is this ideology that has helped Indigenous nations maintain sustenance for centuries. Following Thema Ageras' performance at SFU Gallery in 2022, called Hugh Hadeskelch, Give It All Away, Guest participants were invited to recount the event in what Aguerris described as a collective remembering, a truth about an experience. Listen as participants Tanya, Lucan Linklater, Alicia, Johnny Hawkins and Miguel D'Angeli share their witnessed encounters together in conversation. This audio program is approximately an hour long and opens with an introduction by the editors, Haley McLean and Christy Trinier with sound editing by Jean Brazot. You can find out more and listen to this program on the SFU Galleries website at sfu.ca slash galleries.
1: Welcome to Momus, the podcast. We are your hosts, Sky Gooden. And Lauren Wetmore.
0: This episode is the first in a series that we're going to be doing this season where we're talking to people who participated in a residency that we at MOMAS organized
1: called Estuaries, an International Indigenous Art
0: Criticism Residency. This
1: was a residency we offered in partnership with Forge Project, a Native-led initiative that's located on the unceded homelands of the Mahi Koneok in upstate New York. Candace Hopkins is the director at Forge, and their work is centered on Indigenous art, decolonial education, and supporting leaders in culture, food security, and land justice.
0: So we worked with Dr. Leulia Shragi, who you may remember from a past episode, to bring together an international group of writers, artists, curators, belonging to Indigenous communities all over the world for this residency. And it was organized around this theme of estuaries. So looking at rivers and lakeshores and springs as storied places of local Indigenous nations, as well as sites of reciprocity and entanglement between many living beings.
1: So, we want to continue those conversations into the podcast space by presenting you with a few episodes upcoming where we talk to residents and faculty about a text that is meaningful to them. Lauren, maybe you can talk to us a bit about some of those conversations you've already begun and the one that we'll be featuring today.
0: Yeah. So, as you said, along the theme of the season, we wanted to hear from people invested in writing about art, about texts that are important to them. And the idea is to create a sort of new and ongoing canon for the genre. We are very lucky to have an interview that I did with the wonderful Megan Tamati-Quinnell. Megan is a leading curator and writer of modern and contemporary Maori and Indigenous art, a field she has specialized in for over 30 years. She holds the position of Curator of Modern and Contemporary Māori Indigenous Art at Te Papa in Wellington, New Zealand.
1: Megan left such a deep impression on us. Uh, We sat down with her at the sort of near the end of that time that she had spent in residence. And uh, the vibrancy of her, the integrity of her, and the commitment of her were just all apparent. And also the generosity of spirit that she demonstrated to us, I thought, was uh, really remarkable.
0: Yeah, I agree. We brought all of her bags over to the train and lifted them in after having sort of a two-hour conversation in which she was incredibly generous with us, with her thinking and life. And I think as soon as the train pulled away, we were like, oh my gosh, she must be a guest on the podcast. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So this is an interview that I did with Megan about her own writing and her curatorial practice, the two of which are very intertwined for her. She also talks about Maori and Indigenous art practices and really importantly, I think, what she values in other people's writing about them.
1: How did she frame this text that she chose to share with you? Um, A 2006 review of photographs by the Aboriginal Australian artist Michael Riley. So the text she chose to share is by an
0: Australian cultural historian called Nikos Papastergiadis. And it's looking at a series of portraits that Riley took of people in his mother's community of Maury in New South Wales. So these are people who were living on the two Aboriginal missions in that area. It's an interesting text also because it sits within this anthology called How Aborigines Invented the Idea of Contemporary Art. This book was published in 2011, and it was the first anthology about critical reception of Aboriginal art since the 1980s, um, which was when the art world began to understand this work as contemporary art. So this is a really important document and one that we don't see a lot of sort of peers for in other countries around the world. So Megan does talk a little bit more about what it means to have a book like this and what it might mean to have a book like this for New Zealand, for
1: instance. So here's Lauren's interview with Megan Tamati-Quinnell after she reads Papa Stereotis' 2006 text titled Being and Becoming
2: in Michael Riley's Portraits. The opening of Michael Riley's photographic exhibition, A Common Place, Portraits of Maury Murray's at Rebecca Hasek Gallery, London, 1991, was packed, but in the lower section of the gallery, there was a series of photographs that maintained their equanimity. The space had been lit with care, enough to see each work with appreciation, but not as to disturb the quietness that had settled between each work. The photographs were portraits, Most of them were of individuals. Some of them were of families and friends. Every face was calm. Everyone looked directly at the camera with a warm sense of delight. The photographs had simple names, Nana Riley, Nana with grandkids, two mates. It was obvious that Michael was at home. But more importantly, the gaze and the posture of everyone in the photographs was homely. The two mates stood shoulder to shoulder, one slightly leaning into the other. The dog at Nana's feet was alert, his tail and ears up and ready. He cares that there might be something around the corner. All the photographs were taken with the same backdrop, a long white canvas sheet that also draped down to cover the floor. The background and foreground merged. It was a simple place of intimacy. This series of photographs has never left me. They were the most remarkable portraits of a community I have ever witnessed. Michael took out all the jagged edges of the world in which these people lived, but brought in the dignity with which they face that world on a daily basis. The scene is soft, but that does nothing to soften the reality. There is no sense that these people are posing in a fantasy world. They are in a state of repose and respite, but are not obvious to and apart from their own lives." Even the act of tugging of one kid's arm to hold her in frame is a kind of act of loving cooperation. In this image, the gentle wonder and nervous compliance of the kids is counterposed by the proud smile and firm stance of the mother. As we move along the gallery walls, I felt that we were coming closer and closer to a group of people who understood hospitality and hardship. Michael had created the most relaxed and real photographs of a community, He had not gone into their homes and asked them to be themselves. He had not followed them in the course of their working life or sought to place them in a landscape in a way that might reflect back their struggle or their entitlement. On the contrary, he invited them into a space that was abstract. In this neutral setting, he created the aura of their belonging through the small gestures of recognition. This effect was startling in its simplicity, but also as a turning point in the history of photography. It was in direct opposition to the history of colonial and ethnographic photography that sought to capture the noble savage in their primitive setting. It was also a radical departure from the more recent photorealism that sought to sink the subject into a landscape of grim exploitation and alienation. Michael did not set out to challenge these traditions by any overt act. At that time, the critiques of colonial and ethnographic photography were being forcefully argued in the pages of the post-colonial art journal, Third Text. Many artists were also determined to deconstruct the strategies of the past, appropriate and recontextualise images that had been taken of Indigenous people. It seemed to me... That Michael's aim was more subtle and in a simple way more humble. The difference between even a committed photographer and Michael's work is that his images are not just a document of time and place. They are portraits that seem to have been delivered not with just the consent but also through the active collaboration of the subject. How do you get to this phase of production? There is no shortcuts in this art practice. To convey this intimacy requires profound familiarity. It comes through the way one lives with family and friends. It emerges from a lifetime of having noticed what makes people happy and what causes them pain. Most recently, I have come to think that this relationship has nothing to do with the history of documentation, but a great deal to do with the process of mediation." The photographer is not working with these people for them to create the image of themselves that does not just reflect back a fixed identity, but also presents a sense of who they are and who they are becoming. It shifts the acts of representation from recovering the past to conveying the possibility of being in the present and in the future. I wanted to ask if you could introduce yourself. Okay, so my name is Megan Tamati-Kwanao. I'm a Te Atiawa and uh, Naitahu woman from New Zealand. So I hail from the middle of the North Island of New Zealand and from the bottom of the South Island in New Zealand. So both sides of my ancestry come from there. I'm born and bred and have worked and lived here my life. I'm a curator of modern and contemporary Māori and Indigenous art at Te Papa. And have worked as a curator for about 33, 34 years. (laughs) So, so a while. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, Yeah, I mean, congratulations. (laughs) That's a long time. That's a long time. My first question was why this text? You know, I know that's kind of the overarching question, but maybe just what was your first instinct around choosing this?
2: Well, I think, I mean, I liked the way it was written. That's the first thing for me. I mean, I also, I knew Michael. Michael's now no longer with us. He was a phenomenal photographer. I I really particularly liked the way it was written. I think it was not art speak. It was kind of written in quite simple terms, but I think it was very evocative of, of him, of the artist and his practice. And I think that intimacy that he talked about within this quite simple text um, was reflected in that text, if you know what I mean. Um, mm-hmm. I think he really did understand where Michael went and got to and what that relationship was in relationship to community. So I suppose I really liked its simplicity, but I don't mean that in a kind of condescending kind of way. But that it's not it's not overly worked. And I think to be able to write in quite simple terms so that people can get an, an emotive feeling from something or get a, a sense of something is quite hard to do. You know, I, I suppose I find art writing often is quite my own. <laughs> I can't necessarily judge everybody else's, but my own. Sometimes it's quite laboured. So to be able to read a piece of text which actually moved me and actually encapsulated what I knew of of Michael's work was really good.
0: It makes me think, um, this thing that I was taught in like the only art writing class I I was ever given, where the instruction was make the text meet the work, and there are so many times in the text in which, um, Nikos yeah uses words like simple or direct. And then to hear you describe the text in that way. It's like the text and the artwork are meeting each other.
2: And I think um, Michael wasn't simple necessarily, but he was humble. He's definitely a humble person. Mm. There was a there was a survey show that was done at the National Gallery of Australia. He was a very quiet, unassuming, very shy man. Um, and extraordinary. What it does talk about, of course, is the relationship and the intimacy between him and his subjects, they obviously felt comfortable, they trusted him, and that he really talks about how profound his work is, actually, and the significance of his work without kind of labouring it, and again, you know, I I can only applaud that, if you know what I mean, Mm -hmm. he really does talk about the significance of his practice. You know, he says, but it's also a turning point in the history of photography. That's quite a big claim. It was a very considered piece of writing about the significance of this artist and the relationship between him and that community. And I suppose it's about that idea of representation He didn't follow people into their homes or he put them in this abstract space, but they were all completely comfortable, which spoke about the familiarity he had. They trusted one another. Mm -hmm. And as you know, curators have, and writers It has to be a relationship of trust. When you're working with people, when you're working with artists and creative people, it's a relationship and they are relationships. You know, I end up being friends with a lot of the artists that I work with because I have huge respect for what it is that they deliver on a daily basis and what they do and who they are. I'm a curator who works to and for artists and Mm -hmm. so I feel like that piece of text spoke in that way to me and I found with Nicholas he's such a a great writer he says things that I mean maybe just resonate his writing resonates with me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So what is your relationship with his larger practice or how is he read in New Zealand?
2: I think he's highly regarded but I've never met him I've only read his writing. It was interesting, one symposium one year actually in New Zealand and the the other person who was at the symposium was Candace Hopkins and we both quoted Nikos. Ah. So, and he is, he's a non-Indigenous man. And so I, uh, you know, I don't know how he's regarded. Mm-hmm. I've just gravitated towards his writing because of how it reads to me. I'm not necessarily taken with oh, I have to like that because that person is really important. And I'm not saying he's not important, but that's not the driver for me. It was really what he was saying and how he was saying it.
0: It's saying something that both you and Candace are, oh, are interested in his writing.
2: Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, as I said, as a non-Indigenous man who's writing and, and has an empathy, perhaps, or has taken a position and really just... You know, the honesty. I think there's the honesty to his writing as well. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's important and that these people who will shine a light or illuminate something from the outside that perhaps if you're on the inside you don't necessarily see or he illuminates something which really rings true and you think, yeah, that's how I kind of feel about it. But perhaps I couldn't articulate it in that way. I think writing's such a skill. Someone described it to me once... Um, It's a bit like sweating blood, you know, Um, and sometimes it really does work and it flows and it's really good. And then other times it's extremely difficult, even now, and I've been a curator for a long time and I do a lot of writing and I think I'm a good writer, but I still struggle sometimes. I read things and I think, oh, my God, that's so clunky. What's, Mm. You know, how do I actually say what it is that I need to be saying here? And you do want to be honest and you do want to be true to the work and you do want to meet the work, but you also want to be able to illuminate something and not just be descriptive of a work. You kind of want to honour it. Yeah. I suppose be honest and be able to, the depth or the complexity, be able to articulate that in a way that somebody else will get something from. I mean, that's the ultimate, really. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Do you feel like your practice
0: or your experience of writing changes between writing within Te Papa, within your institutional position, versus writing for,
2: say, books or experiences outside? I think my preference is always to write outside, I mean, I do a lot of writing inside because there's, you know, there's all sorts of writing, exhibition writing, mm-hmm. acquisition proposal writing. There's writing I do for books, but it's often drawn from, because it's about collection works, drawn from the acquisition proposals that I've written in the first place to acquire the work for the collection. And I, I mean, I'm fairly, I'm one of those people who wants to be completely robust and so that the the history or the genealogy of that work or the the significance of it. I mean, I work quite hard around that stuff. It's always for me about doing justice to the to the artist to the work. It takes me ages. I'm a slow writer. I prefer to write outside because I feel like I'm not as constrained. There's no one looking at me, or and even with my acquisition proposals, it's not being published, so mm. I can kind of write the way that I want to. Right. Um, and I'm probably I'm not that free in terms of my writing, I don't think. But, you know, exhibition labels I find difficult. Yeah. Um, because we also have writers that rewrite our writing, you know, because they don't want to use big words. They want them to be, appeal for a, to a 12-year-old, which is fine. I'm not an elitist. I don't mind breaking complicated ideas down. But I also don't want to insult my audience, and I feel like people aren't stupid And also, it's who you're writing for too. So at Te Papa, you know, it's a general audience. Well, I might want to write for a Māori audience, which will have a different knowledge base than a non-Māori audience who'll come in. So I might write from that, from an inside perspective, from from an interior position out. In terms Mm. of writing too, I always felt like... Uh, I'm not an artist, I know that. I think I have an artistic sensibility, but, you know, don't get me to draw a picture, please. Not really. Um, But I always thought that the closest medium to myself, if I want to communicate what's in here or in here, is through writing. Mm -hmm. So I've always thought I was a writer. Mm. And um, I think it helps to be able to write, Sometimes the written word, if it's written down, then it becomes, you know, gospel and it's important, yeah. whereas oral traditions or well, articulating things in other ways isn't valued in the same way. I, I mean, I, I do value those other ways. Yeah. Um, I'm just saying personally, for me, you know, I can public speak if I have to. I know enough protocols and tikanga to kind of cover myself, but I'm, I, I like writing and mm-hmm. it's, it's important to me. I mean, there's a, a great story where I worked with an artist called Michael Corfi, who's probably one of the leading contemporary Māori artists this, in this country anyway. And he was doing a work in Queensland, and he was working with a elder, Aboriginal elder from Australia, and, and it was a land-based work, it's a sculpture, outdoor sculpture. And this old man was telling him the story was a dreaming site that he was connected to personally. And he said to Michael, you know, he's telling him the story, and he said, aren't you going to write it down? And Michael, being Michael, because he's super clever, said, well, where I come from, if you write it down, it means you're not listening properly. And so then at that point, that old man just thought he was the best thing, you know, that he'd ever encountered because he really understood those oral traditions and the significance of them and didn't want to use a European logic to kind of mediate it. You know, I I love that story for that reason, you know. I I suppose writing for me is important. That's all I can say. (laughs) 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 And I think in an art context, it's important. Before I came across to New York recently... For that residency, I wrote a chapter for a book on a senior Māori woman artist who I felt was missing. So I went to Dunedin to write about this artist and I went to the person who had written most of the books about her, Bridie Leone, and I asked her if it was okay if I could actually write because for me, she kind of held that space and I respect what she had done. And of course, I referenced her liberally, but I felt like I brought something else To that, a different thing than she had done. But I felt like I also got to know more about Marilyn's practice. Her name is Marilyn Webb, the artist. I got to know more about her practice through researching and writing and reading and thinking about her work and the significance of who she is and what she did. Again, she's a person who's now passed away. She was a Māori artist who started in the 1950s and continued as a maker all the way through until she passed away in 2021. She was a printmaker, and so she kind of got missed a lot of the time because it wasn't as flash as being a painter or a sculptor, and hers were all about landscapes. She would revisit fragile landscapes, and she would return to these landscapes and make more and more works in relationship to herself and land and bodies of water, but it was the most extraordinary work. And because she was a printmaker, her work got sent. I mean, she was showing, like she was in places like Africa in the 60s and, you know, she was everywhere. She was quite extraordinary. So the reasons I write is to ensure that that is there somewhere and perhaps it's written from a Maori perspective rather than another perspective. Perhaps that hasn't happened in the past. That's why I think it's important and continue to use it as a medium.
0: Speaking of different perspectives on art by indigenous people, the text that you chose to share with us is in this book that's devoted to just that.
2: How Aborigines invented the idea of contemporary art. And it's a great book. It's like an anthology really. Mm. So it's writings on Aboriginal Contemporary Art, edited and introduced by Anne McLean. And Anne McLean is a Again, a non, non-Indigenous non uh, academic, uh, but he's really dedicated his life to Indigenous scholarship around Indigenous Australian. And I kind of admire what he does and says. Sometimes it's easier to look at models that are outside of New Zealand. Sometimes it's harder because maybe there isn't the reference points. And so I'm not saying we need to do exactly the same thing as this publication here, but a publication like that does not exist here. There's no publication that looks at the writings on contemporary Māori art or modern and contemporary Māori art. There's no anthology. It seems like there's been no interest in any of that.
0: There's no anthology, but I imagine that, is that writing happening?
2: Well, it hasn't been happening that long. If you think that I'm the second Māori art curator, contemporary, modern and contemporary, in the country, after a man called Dr Rangi Pānau, who's a a Māori art historian, and wrote a really amazing book, which was the first kind of Māori art history, but very recently that was published, only a couple of years ago, and he was the first Māori art curator in the country, modern contemporary. There's some really great people coming through, but there hasn't been, we haven't been able to write our own histories and our own art histories, and I am interested in that and writing from that perspective. For me... It's not just a political thing, it's a, it's an important thing. And because the way that I might see the world and the way that a, a non-Māori person might see the world uh, might be different. What they bring to the table and what I bring to the table might be different. I'm not saying that they can't be at the table. I'm interested in their analysis of those things too. Mm-hmm. But I would like to be able to see our own analysis of those things and through our own writing and what we regard as important. It's just a different yeah. framing or a different emphasis. And so I often look to places like Australia or sometimes Canada or sometimes the US because the things that are happening there, it's like you find your family. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's not the same, obviously. It's harder sometimes and it's worse sometimes and sometimes it's better. But there's models and it's all about looking at that and saying how you can apply it. So people like Dany broke the ground, but people like me also break the ground because mm-hmm. there was no one else. So that's why I've been in the position I've been for 34 years because it's about a responsibility and I can affect some change, you know, and that's for me very positive. And through writing, sometimes it might shift something.
0: For your residency presentation at Estuaries, you were talking about a mechanism that you use within your writing and it's something that you've established between um, two other ways of thinking and writing.
2: Well, it was really because, you know, um, Papa is it's a knowledge system, but it's the thing that held the world together. So it's a genealogy and everything is interconnected in some shape or form. Your are Papa, you're a genealogy, where you're from and who you are and how you're related. It's the base that then you move from. So I suppose what I'm trying to say is, those art histories is really a whakapapa like who did what when and why so when I talked about Michael Parikowhai before him there was an artist called Ralph Hortiri who was a who was a really extraordinary artist so without a Ralph Hortiri would you get a Michael Parikowhai and without a Michael Parikowhai would you get a, a, a Luke Willis Thompson you know so it's I'm not saying that they're the same or that they emulate one another but if someone opens that amount of space what does it enable the next generation or the next person or the next person yeah so it's a genealogy in that way and I mean I think you see it in music I think you see it in writing and I think you see it in art and so it's really tracking those genealogies and you know telling those histories really but writing about that or encapsulating that or even knowing that and I feel like that's Helpful in the longer run, because people can go back and go. And well, actually, there was a precedent that, that was already set. It's a bit like the show that's on at the moment at Bard that um, Candice has done, which looks at native performance and theatre and goes back to 1969. You know, mm-hmm. in Spider Woman Theatre and. That, to me, is a really important moment because it captures a whole history that perhaps hasn't been really seen or recognised or understood as such before. It kind of charts it in a way, highlights its significance. And, you know, Spider Woman Theatre from 1969, all their archives, how influential were they? And, And how does that then impact on what people are doing now? the Rebecca Belmore's of this world or, or, or James Luna, you know, Native performance art. And these are contemporary histories. Yeah. It's not, you know, like way back in the never-nevers. This is 1969 mm-hmm. and how revolutionary some of that stuff was. So I do a project around what I call Māori modernism. Mm. And it's not a phrase that I coined. It came from an art historian called Damien Skinner, Pākehā. Art historian, but, um, it really looks at those early Māori artists who were working from like the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, and who really never got their day in the sun. And they, you know, there was no kind of form, formula around how they needed to be a Māori artist, but they wanted to be painters and sculptors. They took on European modernism. And they wanted to be artists in a Western sense. They didn't want to be weavers or carvers and they weren't uh, challenging the customary. They were completely outside of that and they made their work for art galleries. But of course, in New Zealand, the art galleries were so racist that their work wasn't allowed in the galleries. Well, really, they showed in school halls and they showed in meeting houses, but their work was contemporary. So they were interesting and there's very little written. there's a project that I want to do, that I'm desperate to do, which really looks at Māori women artists from the 1930s, 40s, the first Māori filmmaker. She was also a set designer. She was also an illustrator. And she had her own photographic studio that she established, but she traded under a European name. Was that because Mm -hmm. she couldn't get trade as a Māori person? I don't know. There was one, Georgina Kirby, who's really an extraordinary person, and she became an arts administrator and people knew of her and probably opened one of the first Māori art galleries in the country. She was a painter to start with and she learned from Louise Henderson, who is a, a French New Zealand woman. And then, as I said, then she becomes an art administrator and she goes to Australia and she works for the Aboriginal Arts Board and to Papua New Guinea to learn about arts administration, comes back to New Zealand, opens one of the first art galleries and then also runs... Um, for a long time, I think, um, which was called Nā Waihanga or the Māori Writers and Artists organisation, which was established in the 1970s and was really for those artists who had broken kind of custom and they called themselves the pioneers of the new consciousness. So there's all this really amazing stuff and, and really amazing histories and those are the things that excite me. I'm probably a nerd. The other piece of writing I was thinking of reading was this guy, John Bevan Ford, who writes about the pioneers of the new consciousness and how those artists at that time, 50s, 60s, 70s, were making work that, you know, he talked about how how ancestors only worked within one cultural context, within a Māori cultural context, and how now they were working within a multiplicity of contexts. And what did that mean? And how did that shift and shape the art? And he believed that they were pioneers of a new consciousness. So I was like, oh my God, I just love that. How is that functioning today in New Zealand, this pioneers of
0: the new consciousness?
2: I get worried. I don't know where things are. There are some artists who are really, really extraordinary, as I said, and there are more senior artists. Like, I'm going to do a project with a very senior Māori woman artist, um, Emily Karaka, who's a painter. And, again, she's 71. And she's a self-taught painter, but she's an extraordinary painter. And she's never had a major show here. So, but to take the opportunity to do it offshore... And to do a major publication, you know, I'm thrilled. And she's thrilled because I would like to do that within her lifetime. If they won't do it in this country, we'll do it somewhere else. That's kind of where I go with things because yeah. I think by the time they realise her significance, she won't be here anymore. And so that's why I stay as a curator because there's things to do. <laughs> yeah. You know some great people coming through, a younger generation that I'm thrilled about, you Mm -hmm. know, But so I can move out of the way at some stage in my particular position and someone will take it where they want to. Mm -hmm. But it's about that responsibility. And I think as an Indigenous person or a First Nations person, you feel a real sense of responsibility to carry something and to do something. It's not a burden to me, it's a joy, but you know, you do feel a responsibility around those things. Yeah. And the writing is part of it because I can leave that there for someone. And, you know, I had a senior curator who said to me once, Megan, you have to be, and he was really great, he was my mentor for many years, you have to be brave enough to make the mistakes of your own time. And I've carried that with me as a kind of little adage forever forever, because I feel like what he was saying there is you actually have to take a position on something. You have to really put a stake in the ground. There's no wishy-washy here. You have to make a decision and then stick by it and you have to take a position. And then in hindsight, people might look and say, well, what was she on about, you know? what was she on about? She got it all, that was completely weird and that was wrong and that was up the do-wah. But I I just think, well, you've got to just do it anyway. You have to have your own kind of integrity and you have to work with that. You can't ask people's permission. Nobody's going to give you the permission to do what you want to do. You just have to kind of just do it anyway. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Take the power.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I wondered if I could ask you a series of questions about your own writing practice. This is a series that we like to give to everybody.
2: Okay. Who do you write for? I often write for the artist, I think. And for the community I suppose I represent, and that might be the art community or an, an art community. And so I do often try and write from an interior kind of position, You know, and I probably do write for a Māori audience, but not exclusively so, because I would like anybody to be able to enjoy it if they want to. A lot of my, even my curatorial practice is about honouring people. You know, it really is about honouring that history or honouring those people. If I didn't like the work, I probably wouldn't write about it. I probably would say, I'm not sure that I'm the right person to do that. Because I just feel like there's other things that I can do that are much more positive and that really talk about something that I feel is significant. So, I recently wrote a thing about the Shahjah Art Biennale, but about these two Māori artists who were in there. So, probably wrote it for who Al Kasimi as the head of the, the Shahjah Art Biennale and she curated it. So, I probably wrote it, it was my kind of thing to kind of acknowledge the work that she had done but also to kind of honour those two artists and make sure that that moment, which was really significant, a very senior artist who's in her 80s and was almost like a mini retro uh, that Ho had pulled together and a very young artist who had been working with her mother, who's a a senior Māori academic and quite incredible and articulating some of her mother's um, knowledge and a a great artist in her own right so I just kind of wanted to do justice to them and say you know this is this is a moment and that these two Māori women artists were in this context and this is the context and this is the person that enabled that. Yeah yeah what are the artists names? So, Robin Kahukiwa, a Māori woman painter, and um, Kahu Ardiki rangi Rangi-Smith, who's quite a young artist and extraordinary, both of them.
0: A lot of people who write, I think, struggle to start. <laughs> so I want to ask, how do, how do you start?
2: How do you know where to start? Sometimes I clean my house and you know make scones and make soup and do a whole lot of things because it's like that procrastination. I find it really hard. I give myself a lot of time. I take time out of absolutely everything, and sometimes I just get up and I don't have a shower. I'm in kind of like, you know, bodgy old clothes. I've got a cup of coffee, and then I read everything before I kind of get in there. So like I said with Marilyn Webb, I went to Dunedin, and I, I was granted, which was really a privilege, to look at her archive that's been put in the Hocken Library down there, but it's not been organised yet. So I I got to go through boxes of her archive. I read the two, the the most seminal texts on her work, and I went and saw the person who had done the most writing. As I said, for me, it's a, a form of respect, but it's also kind of, to try and understand the context that I'm writing in. So that's one of the ways I kind of get myself in As I read a whole lot of things before I start. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe I'm a nerd, but as I said, I, I kind of like to know the territory, you know, and you can go down rabbit holes as you know with that kind of stuff, yeah. but I, I find that helps me.
0: Is there a text that you want to write, but you know that you won't? Oh,
2: God. Uh, I can't think of a text that I won't write at this point. It's more the time factor, if you know what I mean. So it's more that um, there's a publication that I want to do, which is like building the modern and contemporary Maori art collection, and it's a small frame you see. But it's like building that art history through collection development and it charts an art history through artworks in quite a fundamental way. Okay and the final question, uh, what is for you the pleasure of writing? (sighs) When it's done, you always feel happy. (laughs) Sometimes when you look back, I I think the pleasure is actually, as I said, being able to chart something that perhaps hadn't been there before or articulate something that perhaps wasn't understood before or looked at in that way. I think it's at making that unique contribution that you only you can make. And I kind of love that you know, that art's still the last bastion of freedom and there's a democracy within that, that how you see the world and how I see the world is different. I think the joy is being able to put something into the world and to honour some people and um, maybe shift some ground. So I think that's the joy for me, is kind of opening space for other people perhaps or other points of view.
1: Momus, the podcast is edited by Jacob Irish. Thanks to Megan Tamati quinnell for her contribution to this season. And you can find us at patreon.com backslash momusart or contact me directly about making a one-time contribution at skygooden at momus.ca. This has been episode 45 of Momus, the podcast.